and all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan, all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we crossed over, that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. So after crossing the Jordan, Joshua could have easily, and I think if any of us were maybe in this, uh, in his shoes, sandals, we would have just thought, let's just continue on straight on to Jericho. We've got momentum on our side. There's excitement in the camp. We've made it into the promised land. Memorial stones sit up. We're worshiping the Lord, remembering all that God has done. And they know now, as we see clearly, that the people in the land are having their hearts melted over the the reality of this nation of Israel coming in with a almighty God on their side who's made it very abundantly clear that he's working for them, he's going uh, before them, and now the hearts of all the people in the land of, uh, of Canaan are just having their hearts melting over this reality. So you would think in Josh's mind, let's just keep going. Let's just keep going. Let's just strike while the iron is hot, right? Well, not exactly. You see, God is never in as big of a hurry as we oftentimes are or tend to be. Because what we're gonna see, there's still a work that God wants to do in Israel before he moves them into the land. Before he moves Israel into the land, God wants to do a work, first of all, in the hearts of Israel. And, and we can be very quick to launch out and do something for God, but he would rather us be something for him. He'd rather us be the people of God rather than just trying to get out there and do things. He wants to be sure that Israel is conquered spiritually before they move on and attempt to conquer the cities in Canaan as we're going to see in Jericho uh, specifically. So reading in verse two, here's some things that the Lord needs to take care of. <laughs> At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. Now you might be asking, why would God do this now? Because Israel is about to embark on one of their biggest challenges now upon entering their new land. And this would seem like very poor strategic initiative planning at this point, right? And, and just to be sure, this is not that they're getting circumcised the second time. That would be just cruel. It's, it's that these are the people, the new generation that have not been circumcised. So he's got to go through and a second time now in the history of Israel, circumcise the, the people. Now, here's why this was important. First of all, because they were a covenant people, all right? They were chosen and they were chosen to be set apart for God and by God. And so circumcision now was this sign of the covenant that this was a special nation, a special people set apart for God. So it reminded them that their bodies belonged to the Lord. They were his. Now, like I said, it had not been done in their wilderness journey. So now this new generation will be reminded that they were to be a people that were to be yielded and surrendered to God in every part of them, in every way, that they were to be set apart for the Lord. So not only was it to be done because they were a covenant people, but secondly, it's to test their faith. 
Like I said, militarily speaking, this was very, very bad timing. This would render the Israeli fighting brigade quite inoperable, all right? Their military prowess would be, well, a wee bit uh, hindered here. They will need to learn, no pun intended there, but they will need to learn quickly that they're gonna need to trust in the Lord for protection and safety. So they would come to see through this victory that victory comes from the Lord and not themselves. So picking up in verse four, and again, when it says that they're circumcised on the hill of the foreskins, I think that was the name given after the fact, not before. But verse four, and this is the reason why Joshua circumcised him. Now he's gonna, again, kind of go over some of these things I've just said, but just remind us of why they needed to do this. Here's why they need to circumcise them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they came out of Egypt. Verse five, for all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the ways that came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to the fathers that he would give us a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Joshua, verse seven, then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way while they were traveling through the wilderness to go into the promised land. So an entire generation had to wander 40 years in the wilderness because they failed to believe what God said he would do, right? They failed to believe what God said he would do. God said, I'm giving you the land. You just need to go in and take the land. The land is yours, I'm giving it to you. But they doubted that God could do that based on what they saw as they send the spies into the land, 10 of them come back of the 12 spies, 10 and come back with a negative report filled with unbelief that began to be passed on to the rest of the camp in Israel. And everybody said, oh, we cannot do this. There's giants in the land. We're, we're like grasshoppers in their eyes. We're going to be devoured. So they doubted based on what they saw rather than having faith in what they heard. What did they hear? God saying, go in, the land's yours. And they lost out as a result. So now that there's a new generation, circumcision is needed to be renewed. Again, like I said, circumcision was the sign of the covenant that they were a people set apart to serve the Lord and be used of the Lord. This would be a distinct marking now for the people of God. But this was to be more than just a physical marking. This was to be symbolic of a spiritual work that God wanted to do in their hearts that obviously still needed to be done because this whole act of circumcision was really to be a picture of how they're to cut away the flesh of their heart, how they're no longer to live being driven by the flesh and by themselves, but they're to be surrendered and yielded to the Lord. No longer governed by the flesh, but governed by God. So it's to indicate through the circumcision that this is to be a circumcision of the heart. I mean, God 
made that very clear to us in, in his word, Jeremiah 4, 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. All right, they were people that began to be so driven and led by their flesh rather than faith in the Lord. And so God says, circumcise the foreskins of your hearts, Deuteronomy 36, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. This is a key thing for all of us as believers. If we're gonna walk in the abundant life that the Lord has to us, if we're gonna truly live as the Lord desires us to live and experience life he has for us is to render ourselves dead to sin and reckon yourselves dead to the flesh. Romans 2, verse 28 to 29 says, for he's not a Jew who's one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he's a Jew who's one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not a letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. So as we see through scripture, this whole process was to be more than just a ceremonial religious act for the people of Israel. It was to be significant of a heart that is now turned to the Lord in repentance and ready to follow wholeheartedly in obedience to what the Lord has and what the Lord has already said very clearly to them. Again, God is much more concerned with where our heart is spiritually than where we are physically. Oh, he'll get them to Jericho, and he'll get them through Jericho, but he wants them first to learn to trust him and move forward in the Lord and not in the flesh. Have we been those that have allowed that circumcision of the heart to where we have surrendered and yielded ourselves to the Lord to the extent where we're again saying, we're yours, Lord. We're ready to follow you obediently in whatever you have for us. We're ready to go your way and not just try to have our way in each situation and circumstance. Lord, we need to circumcise our own hearts here. So it was in verse eight, when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. So for about probably six months, eight months is my guess, I don't know. Uh, who knows, I don't know. Probably wasn't that long, but. Then the Lord said to Joshua, this day I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. So here they are, they're camped out in Gilgal. That's the first little kind of known place they come to when they cross the Jordan on the, on the west side in Canaan, they're in Gilgal. We talked about that last week. And there's a time to let the guys just get healed. Remember, Gilgal means to roll or, or rolling. That's what Gilgal means. And, he, and it's here that God says that the reproach of Egypt is gonna be rolled away now. It's gonna be rolled away. Well, what was the reproach of Egypt? What does he mean by that? Well, it was that they saw this nation of Israel delivered out of Egypt. The Egyptians all saw that. I mean, they saw the miraculous work of the Lord, but they have seen Israel now taken out of Egypt, but now left in the wilderness, wandering in circles for 40 years. And it was an opportunity for Egypt to look upon Israel with scorn, with mocking, and go look at these guys. Oh, they may have gone out of Egypt, but look at what's happened to them now. They're just in the wilderness, and they're complaining and, and grumbling. Perhaps they could have said, well, the Lord brought them out, but he can't bring them in. 
The Lord's brought them out of Egypt, but he can't bring them in. Ah, look at those guys, the reproach of Egypt. But now, but now, they're in the land. They're in the land and they stop at Gilgal. And here, it's evident that God is still at work. And God's been faithful to bring them in in the the reproach of Egypt, the scorn, the ridicule, the mocking has been rolled away now as Egypt is eating their words and recognizing that God has carried out his work. Listen, God is always faithful to finish what he begins, isn't he? And we're, we're all a testimony of that, the very fact that, that God is still at work in us and he'll be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. But we must learn to walk faithfully in the process. Yes, God's doing that work of sanctification. He's doing that work of, uh, of completion in our lives. But oh, how we need to be sure that we're walking faithfully. God will be faithful to finish what he starts, but let us be faithful to walk obediently and faithfully to what he has for us. Verse 10, now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they'd eaten the produce of the land and the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. So here now, yeah, Passover is being instituted once again. Passover was first instituted at Israel's deliverance out of Egypt. That first night they fled Egypt is, of course, the first Passover, and it's to be an annual celebration and memorial of how God redeemed and freed his people out of bondage and slavery from Egypt. Now, there's no indication that the Jews continue to follow Passover during their wilderness wandering, same as circumcision. And that's why these two important uh, uh, rites are, are being, or ceremonies are being observed again and it's just that no uncircumcised person was able to participate in the Passover, according to Exodus 12, verse 48. So it's important for Israel now to remind themselves that they're here because of the Lord. They've made in the land because of the Lord. As the Lord has delivered them miraculously out of Egypt and from bondage, he'll once again do a miraculous work to bring them into the promised land and to lead them through in victory. Now, just as the Passover was to be that annual reminder of Israel's redemption and freedom, an annual reminder of what God has done for them, communion for us is that reminder of the redemption that we have in and through Jesus Christ. How we've received in Christ that freedom, forgiveness of sin, all accomplished in and through Christ by his sacrifice on the cross. And we do that regularly to remind ourselves that it is only by the grace of Jesus Christ and his atoning work by which we stand. Israel was to do this regularly, annually, as a reminder that if it wasn't for the Lord, they would still be in Egypt, in bondage. The Lord has delivered them. The Lord has rescued them and set them free, not to live for themselves, but has set them free to live for him. And we too can celebrate the fact through communion, which is important to do regularly. That's why Jesus says, 
do this in remembrance of me because we can so easily get away from just remembering the beauty of grace and the blessing of what Christ has done solely to atone for our sins and how we need to be continually reminded of the greatness of the cross and come back to that place by which we found new life in him, freedom to live for Christ, freedom to serve the Lord, the honor and the privilege of having life redeemed in and through him. Now, it's interesting that we read here that once they partook of Passover and ate of the produce of the land that the manna now stopped. So the manna continued with them for those 40 years in the wilderness, right up into coming into the promised land. But now that manna is stopping for them. That's uh, very interesting to see that. The manna was something that the people complained over and, and caused them to long for Egypt. Numbers chapter 11, verse four to six, tells us how they, they complained about the manna and, and they longed for all the, the you know, great food they remember having in Egypt, which I think was, again, just uh, a failure of their memory more than anything because they did not have a good in Egypt, but how the devil loves to twist those things around. But as amazing as the manna was, God had something far greater for them, something they missed out on because of their grumbling and unbelief. See, when we follow God obediently, so it doesn't guarantee that everything is just gonna go smoothly, but everything is gonna happen ultimately for our good. As we follow the Lord, as we remain walking in what he has for us, because God's a good God. And God has good things in store for all that will simply follow him in his way. It doesn't guarantee that everything's gonna be smooth and easy, but when we're walking in the Lord, obediently following him, we can rest assured that we're right where we need to be and God has us, is gonna take care of us and lead us through and provide for us every step of the way. And here's Israel now coming to the land and now they have the blessedness of the, the produce of the land. So, so far we've seen all this walking to Follow the Lord obediently encompasses crucifying the flesh, reckoning yourself dead to sin, remembering what Christ has done for us, and walking in the abundant life that he has given us. Now, in preparing for victory, God's people had to overcome four great obstacles. We can put up this next slide if somebody's, I don't have control of my slides here. Um, in preparing for victory, God's people had to overcome four great obstacles. First of all, the death of Moses. Secondly, the morale of the troops. Chapter two talks about that. Chapter one talks about the death of Moses. Number three, as we see in chapters three and four, the raging waters of Jordan. And number four, they had to overcome the spiritual condition of the people here in chapter five. The first obstacle was surmounted by words of encouragement and exhortation. The second by information derived from reconnaissance Thank you, Justin. The third, by dramatic manifestation of the power of God, and the fourth, by renewal of basic ceremonies, which marked Israel as a special people of God. So God's doing a work in his people and leading them in in this way and all the steps that we've seen throughout Joshua so far in these first four chapters and now into chapter five. Look at verse 13. This is great. It came to pass 
when Joshua was by Jericho, thank you. It came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, no, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I've now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandal off your foot for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. So notice that in verse 13, it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho. So here's Joshua now. It seems like he's out on a bit of a reconnaissance sort of mission, maybe just checking out, you know, okay, what's this going to look like now? Trying to, you know, conquer Jericho, bringing down this first uh, major city in the land of, of Canaan. He's out checking things by the knee. He lifts his eyes up a little bit and suddenly he sees a very interesting person with a sword ready to do battle. And Joshua, wise, he asked if he's for Israel or for, for their enemies. I love the answer, no. It's kind of like, I don't think that's the answer Joshua's probably looking for. It leaves him more confused. But it is no, no to the first question or to the second question. Which one is it, right? But the man quickly identifies himself as the commander of the army of the Lord. Commander of the army of the Lord. See, what we have here, I believe, is another pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. He's visited the patriarchs in times past as the angel of the Lord. But now he comes to do battle on behalf of Joshua and all of Israel. And I love how we see through scripture how the Lord always comes to us in the way that we need him. To Abraham the pilgrim, he came as a traveler to share a meal. The angel of the Lord comes, the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. To Jacob, the schemer, angel of the Lord comes as a wrestler to break him of his dependency. Jacob said, I'm not gonna leave you until you bless me. I'm not gonna let you go until you bless me. Jacob realized he needed him. To Hagar, who's in grief, the angel of the Lord comes as the God who sees and hears and comes and ministers to her. To the three Hebrew men, oh, he comes as that companion in the fiery trial, sustaining them and protecting them. To Joshua, now the leader of Israel, here he comes as the commander of the army of the Lord, reminding Joshua that he's just really second in command. Don't worry, Joshua, this, this battle is not for you to win. This battle is for you to simply follow the Lord in what he has and what he's gonna do and to walk obediently in what he has for you. And so we see the reality of this commander being more than just a man because Joshua was ready to yield to him and give him the respect due to him, but this commander says to take off your sandals. See, this is more than just a, a man of high rank that Joshua's looking to you know, pay respects to. This is one now who deserves worship and whose presence cannot tolerate sin or impurity. Remove the sandals, just like Moses was called to do in the presence of God at the burning bush. This indicates that reverence now, reverence for the holy presence of God. So the Lord's revealing once again that Joshua is not gonna win this battle through military fortitude. No, victory's gonna come simply through faith in the almighty God. See, the more important question for Joshua was not to ask commander, who's, are you for us or for our adversaries? The more important question was, Joshua, whose side are you on? Who are you fighting for? 
Are you on the Lord's side, Joshua? That's the more important question. We can lay out our plans and hopes and ask God to come alongside them and bless them. But what we need to do is come alongside what God is doing. May we always be certain to be standing on the Lord's side and not lay out everything and ask the Lord to bless it, but to say, Lord, what do you have? I wanna be certain that I'm walking right in step with the Spirit, with right, right in step with what you have for us here. I wanna make sure that I'm on your side and not fighting against you, not, not resisting what you're doing, but walking right in step with what you have, right on the Lord's side. So moving to chapter six, it says, now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. Now we need to remember that the Christian walk is not all about tranquility and ease. Oh, there are times where we're gonna face challenges and conflicts. Some Christians have never experienced victory because they've never waged war against the things that are holding them back or restricting them from that victory. We've oftentimes tried to play it safe or just sit in the, in the background. And we fail to wage war against the things that are ultimately holding us back from victory and, and ultimately fail to walk in the victory that God is securing for us. See again, God had to conquer Israel before Israel could conquer the land. Have we allowed the Lord to do that in our lives? Have we surrendered him? Have we gone to battle against the things impeding our progress and the victory that God has for us? We've seen the stages in Joshua that are parallel to our victory. We've seen, first of all, Joshua had to learn to have a, a humble worship there in chapter five, verse 14. Humble worship is he bows down. He needs to learn how to have a holy walk in verse 15 of chapter five in a heavenly warfare. John Chrysostom said, you are but a poor soldier of Christ if you think you can overcome without fighting and suppose you can have the crown without the conflict. So Jericho, as we see now in verse one, Jericho stands as that picture for the believer. Something that's standing in the way of our inheritance in the Lord. An obstacle that can only be taken down by the Lord's strength, but one that, must, that we must be willing to, to fight through in spiritual warfare to overcome. One that we must be willing to, to partner with the Lord in and follow Him in order to see those things come down and to have that progress in what the Lord has for us to inherit ultimately. Now the city of Jericho is, again, we begin to see it securely shut up. It's a well-fortified city. Jericho had uh, two walls, sorry, two thick walls. The outer wall of Jericho was six feet thick and about 11 feet high. Some estimates uh, say it's higher. And then the inner wall around Jericho that was about, um, oh, I think about 12 feet apart or so. The inner wall was 12 feet thick and about 35 feet high. Jericho was built on a hill so that there was a steep incline just even to get to the walls that made it very hard for an enemy to scale. So anybody coming by that city is looking at this well-fortified city thinking, man, there's no way we're gonna be able to get through that. There's no way we're gonna be able to get to those people and bring them down. And so Joshua is out and he's kind of checking things out when he sees the command of the army of the Lord. But now in chapter six, verse one, we're seeing that it's securely shut up and no one went out and none came in. 
definitely secured. In the eyes of Israel, it seemed impossible to take this city, but God. And again, what I love is that God's already at work here. Because why is it securely shut up? Because everybody in the city is afraid of Israel. They've already heard the word, just like we saw with Rahab. Everybody's heard about the wonderful works of God and how the people of Israel have already taken out those that were in their way, moving just to get to where they are now. And the people are already afraid of Israel. God's already at work on the inside. As you saw the beach chapter five, their, their hearts are already melting. And so they've locked themselves in now. Then we see verse two, the Lord said to Joshua, see, I've given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. God reminds Jericho or reminds Joshua that he's already done the work and he's already secured the victory. We need to remember something here, guys. We don't fight as believers in Christ we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory because that victory has already been secured for us in and through Jesus Christ. God says, Joshua, I've given Jericho in your hand, but you need to go in and take it. See, the Lord Jesus has already done the work for us. He secured our victory over Satan, sin, and death. We don't fight for victory, but from victory. So we don't give up or let up. We still need to claim the ground God has given us. We still see that there are battles waging, but the war has been won and we need to trust the Lord and walk in that victory that he's provided for us. Second Corinthians 2.14 says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. So here's the instructions given to Joshua, verse 3 saying, you shall march around the city, all you men of war, you shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn. And when you hear the sound of the trumpet that all the people shall shout with a great shout, then the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up every man straight before him. So here's the Lord giving Joshua his marching orders, quite literally. And I think Joshua would have been asking God, what's the backup plan here, Lord? What's, what's plan B? Can we hear that right now, maybe? Because I'm sure in Joshua's ears, this sounds ludicrous, ridiculous. I mean, it could leave... Israel, the laughing stock of Canaan. But understand something, God doesn't provide great challenges to set us up for failure. He provides great challenges to strengthen our faith. That's exactly what God is gonna be doing in and through Israel here. It's what God loves to do for us. When you face things in front of you that seem like great obstacles, they're not meant to, they're not meant to set you up for failure. They're not meant to discourage you. They're not meant to set you back. They're meant to build you up in faith to see what God's gonna do as he leads you through and as you follow him. So God's gonna have them do something very extraordinary here. But ultimately it's gonna be to reveal the extraordinary greatness of God. Now keep in mind, again, God could have done this all by himself. God doesn't need Israel to do any of these things, marching around the city, 
once every day for six days and on the seventh day march around it seven times and everybody shout. God doesn't need Israel to do any of these things to bring down the city. Now this is the work that God's gonna do, but again, God loves us to partner with him. Not because he needs our help, but he wants us to step out of faith and come alongside in what he's doing because we get blessed as we get to see all that God does. Again, it, it encourages us, it strengthens our faith and it allows us to continue to move forward in even greater ways as we step out and trust the Lord in these things. Now, I, I gotta think that this would be a pretty hard selling point for Joshua to pass this on to the people of Israel. Hey guys, okay, here's what we're gonna do. Everybody, we're gonna walk around the city. Just gonna walk around it. And then we're going to throw arrows and spears at the people, Joshua, is that what we're gonna do? No, no, we're just gonna, we're just gonna walk around it. And then what? We're gonna wait until they all come out. No, we're gonna go back and camp. And then we'll come back the next day, we're gonna walk around. And then, and then we're gonna throw the spears and arrows and, and ransack the city. Is that right, Josh? That's gotta be what, no, nope, we're just gonna walk around it and then we're gonna head back home, camp out for the night. Okay, all right, Joshua. And then just back and forth, just again, I mean, this, I'm sure Israel's all looking at Josh like, we've got the wrong leader. Like, oh my goodness, we're missing the days of Moses. Like, who else? Is there somebody else that's hearing from the Lord here? Because I don't think Joshua is. And so this is gonna be a huge exercise of faith. It's one that's gonna take great courage and hope now to follow through this. We pick it up in verse six, reading this. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, proceed and march around the city and let him who is armed advance before the Ark of the Lord. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets and the rear guard came after the ark while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. Verse 10, now Joshua had commanded the people saying, you shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall the word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, shout, then you shall shout. So we had the ark of the Lord circle the city going around it once. Then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp and Joshua rose early in the morning and the priest took up the ark of the Lord then seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets and the armed men went before them. But the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did six days. Now, uh, normally the priests would not be there in battle, and they certainly would not be bringing the Ark of the Covenant into battle. So there's some difference uh, that we're seeing with this kind of military campaign. Again, it's new now coming into the Promised Land and the Ark of the Covenant is meant to really be symbolic of just the presence of the Lord. The Ark would be this reminder that the Lord is with them and the Lord is one that's securing this victory for them. Now again, this strategy seemed very foolish I'm sure to the people of Israel, but God was doing some good things through all this. What's he doing? Well, first of all, he's building faith in Israel because they would need to trust that the Lord's ways were good and right. As much as they would love to try to perhaps add their two cents or think, you know, can we at least try to 
break down some of the walls. We're walking around it. Maybe on day four, could we at least try then? I'm sure they're gonna all think there's gotta be something more that we've gotta do. Especially on the seventh day after they're told, you walk around at the seventh, after the seventh time, you're all gonna shout when the, when the priests blow their ram's horns, and then I'm sure they're all thinking again, okay, then, then we destroy the city. No, no, you're just gonna wait. I mean, it's gonna take faith every step of the way. Secondly, it's gonna teach them obedience. Would they follow the plan exactly? Would they just go around six times on the seventh day and say, all right, that should be good enough. We'll just leave it there. I was gonna teach them obedience. Building courage, number three. All of Jericho would be able to see Israel marching below. And guess what? Israel's all gonna be open game for the people there on the city walls. They're vulnerable to attack and yet they're gonna have to Again, learn to trust the Lord, but have courage to know that God's got them and God's their defender. Number four, it's gonna build endurance. They had to keep going day after day, even when nothing seemed to be happening. They're gonna be wondering, is this the time? Is this when something's gonna crack, when something's gonna give? But again, they're gonna have to build endurance. Number five, it's gonna break them of any self-reliance. You see, walking around this city and getting a close look at the walls and the strength of the city would have caused them to see this was completely out of their hands. They're getting a close-up view of how well-fortified Jericho is. And they're going to recognize there's no way we're going to be able to take this city on. And that's exactly right. It's going to break them of their self-reliance to cause them to see this has got to be completely a work of the Lord. The Lord is gonna to need to act on their behalf. You know, oftentimes, this is the process the Lord takes us on in our Christian walk, in our journey with the Lord. We see walls get put up in our lives that either keep sin in or keeps people out. We can feel like we're just going in circles with little hope, but in the process, God is teaching us to walk by faith and walk in obedience. Be courageous in fighting against the enemy and enduring to the end because the walls will eventually come down when we recognize it's not by our effort or through our strategy, but it's by the Lord alone. Faith does not rely on what is seen, but on what is unseen. It doesn't rely on the arm of the flesh, but relies on the strength of God. Hebrews 11.30 tells us that by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the walls came down. Oh, it's completely the Lord. But the children of Israel needed to respond and move out by faith and in faith and trust the Lord to do that work. So verse 15, it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early. This is it now. They rose early about the dawning of the day and they marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day, only they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened when the priests blew the trumpets that Joshua the people shout for the Lord has given you the city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction. It and all who are in it, only Rahab, the harlot, shall live. She and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, 
lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So as the city would be destroyed, the people were not to take the devoted things for themselves in Jericho. They were to take it for the treasury of the Lord. They were to give it to the Lord. So the silver and the gold, the vessels of bronze and iron, they were to be given to the Lord. And that would be here. Jericho would be their first conquest in their new land. And so they're to give the first fruits of this victory to the Lord who deserves it all. Because it's all through him and by him. It would also remind them completely that they had nothing to do with the victory. It was all by the Lord and through the Lord. It's interesting that the Lord brings them to their toughest challenge first. Jericho would have been the most challenging city there in Canaan. Arguably the most challenging city. And yet the Lord doesn't bring them to some lesser city, to an insignificant city to kind of build them up a little bit. No, he brings them right to the most difficult city first. I think that would have gone a, a long way for Israel to recognize if God can bring down this city, there's nothing else for us to fear in the land. We can keep moving forward with that same faith, trusting the Lord. This would be a great and huge builder of faith for Israel to continue on in every place that they set their foot to, to continue to walk in that victory that the Lord is clearly providing for them. So verse 20, the people shouted, when the priests blew their trumpets, and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. Now, just check this out. Not only did they you know, walk around the city once for six days straight and just return home and camp and go back and repeat the next day, not only were they to walk around on the seventh day seven times. But at the end of that seventh time walking around the city, when the priests blew their, their, their ram's horns, they were all to shout out. They were all to shout out. Now, I mean, that's a big step of faith here. They've seen nothing up until this point. There's been no trembling, no shaking, no, no small bricks kind of starting to fall where they're thinking, oh, what's happening? It's coming, all right, shovel louder. They see nothing. And I mean, this would be very awkward to just sit there after seven days or after seven days after the seventh time around, shout out, and then also to stop and think, crickets, and nothing's happening. That's again, a big step of faith, one that could leave a lot of egg on your face if, if nothing happens. They really need to obey and trust the Lord here. But of course, just as God said, he's giving them the city and the victory, and they just need to do what God says. And as they shouted out, the walls fell down flat. I love that. God just completely did a miraculous work here. And in verse 21, they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. But Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, go into the harlot's house and from there bring out the woman and all that she has as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. Verse 24, but they burned the city and all that was in it with fire, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, 
her father's household and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Now, this work gets difficult for a lot of people when we talk about the, the conquest of, of Canaan because a lot of people will look at scriptures like this that we just read here in verse 21 and on, uh, and they'll kind of dwell on what appears to be, you know, the cruelty of God. How could God do that? How could he cause his people to come in and just utterly destroy everybody that was there? But we have to remember, God has given the people in Canaan over 400 years to repent. He's taken the, the small nation of Israel, brought them into Egypt to grow and develop in health there as a nation. And he's given all that time now that they've been in Egypt over 400 years for the nation uh, and for the people, sorry, the people of Canaan to repent and to turn to the Lord. But they've not done so. They've continued on in, in egregious sin and abominations before the Lord. They've corrupted the land and they've corrupted one another to the point where they've just utterly been destroying themselves. If you hear about it, just if you're taking notes, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 9 to 14, you can just read some of the things there. I mean, there were, there were child sacrifices that were going on in the land. And God basically says, it's time for these people to be removed and to be wiped out because they're utterly destroying themselves in a very corrupt and heinous way. So the only remedy for that, if they're not willing to repent and turn, which he's given them plenty of time to do, is to remove them. Just like cancer needs to be cut away, lest it destroy the rest of the body. God knew if they remain, well, they're going to corrupt Israel. And the line that God is choosing to bring the Messiah through has the potential to be tainted if these people remain. We know how much Israel struggled with just the, the few that never were completely taken out of the land and the enemies that they never did wipe out. We know how much Israel fell prey to that temptation and sin that was involved there and in the, in the pagan kind of rituals. God's desire was for Israel to come into the land and to be protected in the land, to bring about God's purposes. But I think rather than focus on the destruction of Jericho, I think it's amazing to see what we read here is that he spares Rahab and her family. He showers his home with his grace and protects them. And the fact that the walls all fall and there's Rahab, we know, who is living there in the city wall. However the walls fall, this apparent area where Rahab's living doesn't crumble and she's protected and they're able to go. The spies that had told her the plan are able to go and bring her and her family out to safety. Rahab lived out with Psalm 61, three says, for you've been a shelter for me, a strong tower, from the enemy. And not only is Rahab and her family saved, but God now, in his amazing grace, allows Rahab to be a part of the lineage of the Messiah, as we read in Matthew chapter one. That's some amazing grace right there, that not only is this Gentile woman a part of a 
corrupt pagan city, not only is she saved and spared, but now she gets brought in to be part of the very family of God and a part of the very lineage of the Messiah. That's amazing to me. So God is good. And we can always say, God is good. Yes, there are things that we can scratch our head over at times and wonder, but ultimately we understand that all that God does is good, it's righteous, and it's just. Verse 26, then Joshua charged him at that time saying, cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. He shall lay his foundations with his firstborn and with his youngest, he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout all the country. Now that's interesting because this curse actually came to pass during the reign of Ahab when a man named Heel rebuilt Jericho but lost his two sons in the process of doing so. First Kings chapter 16, verse 34 records that. Very interesting. Well, this is a powerful story and it offers us a battle plan that is so bizarre that no one in his or her right mind would follow it unless, of course, it's that opportunity to obey our awesome God. Then, however, it does make sense since the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of this world, right? So here then is the central issue for us today. Are we prepared to go with the foolishness of God? Or do we fear that our obedience will make us seem less than we would like? After all, it's easy to hold back from obedience. So the story is a powerful proclamation of the truth to us. If we want to achieve God's purposes, then the only option is to do so in God's ways, which is always the better way, the best way, and the way that always leads us on in the victory he has for us. All right, let's learn those lessons here tonight from God's word. All right, worship team, would you come? Close to the song, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight humbly. And God, we thank you that you are a good and loving God who always leads us on in triumph. God, you've secured victory for us, but you've also called us in your word to live by faith and to walk in obedience. And those are hard things to do because we're so accustomed to responding by what we see. And yet you work in ways that go beyond our, our vision, our sight, our understanding. So God, help us to be people of faith. Increase our faith, Lord. Cause us to, and help us to trust you in all things that are before us. When there are obstacles there, things that might be impeding us, hindering us, or even causing us to fall back, I pray, Lord, that we would walk by faith and know that, God, you've already secured the victory for us. May we go forward in all that you have and, and go forward without reliance and trust in you because you are good. And so help us to not just hear and, and know these things, but may we, may we put them all into practice as we live these lives for you. So we ask this now in your name, Jesus.